is that there is no limit to the areas of our lives where Jesus will go to bring transformation and to challenge us to live in line with the truth of the gospel. We turn with me. We're in Luke 16, which Mark read out for us helpfully before. Uh, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say to us on this really complex subject of money, motives and stewardship. Now, to give you a little bit of background to what's happening here, uh, because we have had two weeks here where we weren't preaching through this series. We had our launch series. Uh, Luke gives us chapter 16 on the assumption that we've read and understood chapter 15. In fact, he didn't put it in chapters. It's all one text. Uh, in chapter 15, Jesus spoke to, started speaking to two groups of people who he's still talking to now. Yeah, on the one hand, you had the sinners, the tax collectors and the disciples. Uh, and on the other hand, you had the Pharisees, the supposedly righteous people of the day. And he explained, most notably in the parable of the prodigal son, that they were both lost, both in need of God's salvation. So in Luke 15, Jesus made it really clear, both groups are sinners, living lives that were offensive to their heavenly father. Both deserving God's wrath, in fact, but as the loving father of wayward sons, the father has, was willing to suffer a great cost to himself to provide them both with mercy and redemption. And it's largely into these two groups of people that he's speaking to uh, that, that chapter 16 is separated. Uh, today, we're looking at the first half of that chapter where Jesus speaks to his disciples and to the sinners and the tax collectors, many of whom were, many of his disciples were the sinners and the tax collectors. Hello, Charlie, again. Uh, and we get, he gives them a parable that exhorts us to steward what we have for a purpose. And what, what we'll get to next week in the second half of chapter 16, if you're, if you're still with us then, is that he goes on to deliver a much more ominous sort of parable to the Pharisees with a basically similar message. And the unified message of this whole passage and the chapter is that Christians follow Christ with everything they've got in pursuit of eternal gain. If we're saved by Christ, then we are to use everything we have now for the sake of eternal gain. What God has given you now is not given just for our gratification or temp of temporary desires in this life, but for the pursuit of eternal better desires. Let's get to it. Uh, Luke chapter 16. So, uh, I'm not going to read the whole parable out to you again. Uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he tells them this story. There's this rich guy and he has a steward. Now, that, that means a man who takes care of his financial interests, really. Uh, and he hears that the steward has been stewarding extremely poorly. In fact, he has been wasting his master's money. The Greek word there is actually the same one that we get back in chapter 15 for the prodigal son when he squandered his father's possessions. He's just been throwing it away, scattering it, wasting it. And so the rich man, the boss, uh, tells his steward, his manager, to get his stuff together and turn in his books. He's fired. Uh, the steward panics, understandably, I think you'd say. He doesn't know what to do. His job is his livelihood, but a life behind the desk, desk has left him unsuitable for labouring. Uh, and he's just too proud to go and beg. 
And so he gets sneaky instead. He decides that before he hands over his books, he will call in the people who owe his boss money and he will cut down their debts so that essentially they end up indebted to him. Now, what do we expect the master to do in this parable at this point? Interesting. You know, what, what would we think is going to happen here? You know, will, will he, will he uh, give the steward a boot in the bum and, and, you know, on the way out the door and, may, and maybe say, right, off to prison with you and you will not get out until you've paid the last cent? Uh, well, interestingly, no. That's not what he does. In fact, we're told that the master commends the steward for his shrewdness. It's like he finds out, this kind of reads like he finds out that the, the, steward, the steward who has swindled him already has swindled him out of a bit more and he goes kind of like, nice. Oh, oh man, great job. I certainly did not see that coming. And then finally, Jesus draws his conclusions from the story. You know, finally it's all going to make sense, right? If you're confused at this point, that's understandable. That's where we're meant to be at the moment. Uh, and what does Jesus say? He says, The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. I mean, what the blazes is going on here? I, I did not say lightly that this is the most challenging parable in the New Testament. It's one of those passages that we might find it easier, honestly, to skip over in our reading at home, isn't it? If, you, if you're a Bible reader. You know, you're, you're reading Luke and, oh, the parable of the prodigal son. Amazing. I love this one. What a message of redemption. And, you know, the father welcomes in his, his beloved sons and wants them back. And, oh, and hey, it's a parable about a manager who's dishonest and gets congratulated for being dishonest. And Jesus says that we're to use unrighteous wealth to make friends. <sighs> you know, I'm sure we'll cover this at church at some point. I'm just going to skip on and, and, and move, move on from here. But, but seriously, um, whilst, whilst this is notoriously one of the most difficult parables to interpret, there is a really vital point to it for us. And just for clarity's sake, I'm going to chuck up front what I think that point is. And then I'll show you how we get there. My point is, Christians give everything they've got to win others to Christ. Now, why, why is that the point? Well, there are a few reasons. A uh, few reasons why we have so much trouble actually understanding this. And once we get to the bottom of them, it'll help us to figure this out. Firstly, we, we get baffled, I think, by the rich man um, commending his dishonest manager. That's really confusing for us. And I think we come out of the prodigal son where there's kind of this almost one-for-one -one comparison between the father in the prodigal son and, and God. Uh, and expect that this parable is going to kind of fit the formula. But the rich man in this parable doesn't directly represent God. Uh, and the lesson of the parable hasn't got anything to do with the relationship of the rich man and his steward. This is a thing in parables. You can't draw into every single detail in a parable and say, well, that's significant, that's significant. You have to go for what's the point of what's being said here. 
Uh, and so the, 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 the rich man plays something of the God role in the story, but we're not meant to look at him and go, well, he's an example of how God is. Now, there's also some cultural context that we need, which is going to help us to get our heads around what goes down here. Uh, many, many commentators point out that the people of Israel were explicitly commanded in the law of the Old Testament not to charge in interest to fellow Israelites. And, and the sneaky way that a lot of rich men got around this was to charge extra on the original loan. So, for instance, if I was lending you 50 measures of oil, well, we would make an arrangement where actually we, on, the, on, the, on the loan we'd write 100 measures that you have to pay back. That way, you got the oil that you needed to get your venture off the ground. I got something out of it to make it worthwhile for me. But whilst this was a done thing, it wasn't really a smiled upon thing because of that whole, you're not meant to charge each other interest law. So when we read about the manager cutting down the bills, what's possible is that he may just be removing the interest, not, not swindling his master out of house and home. Uh, now, that's, that's not the only interpretation of this, but uh, maybe he was actually swindling his master. We don't really know. But if this is the case, it gives us a better understanding of the master's reaction, doesn't it? Because he can't exactly throw his weight around in the community to get the bills changed back, can he? He can't exactly make a fuss and throw the steward in jail because it might come to light that he was dishonest in making the loans in the first place. So he begrudgingly concedes that the steward has gotten the better of him and commends him for being clever. And that's important too. Maybe, maybe that's centrally important. The master doesn't commend his dishonesty. He commends the clever, shrewd use of money. Our next big difficulty is with those words that Jesus says. He says, make friends for yourselves by use of unrighteous wealth. Does he mean we should deal dishonestly to make money to make friends with? Have we been doing church wrong this whole time? Um, I mean, hopefully we have. If, anyway, uh, what, what is this unrighteous wealth? Maybe that's, that's the question. Um, and the answer to that comes for us down in verse 11 of, of the chapter. When Jesus contrasts, uh, uses the same words, he contrasts unrighteous wealth with true riches. And actually back in, in chapter 12 of Luke, we get a similar contrast. When he, when he told his disciples, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, Jesus' idea of true riches is the riches that come with having Jesus, the riches of eternity with God. And so the unrighteous wealth here he has, that he has in mind, it seems to encompass kind of just everything else, if you will. Not necessarily things that are explicitly bad. He's not using unrighteous in this way. He's contrasting it against the heavenly. It's all of the things that we have in this life that won't come with us out of it. So now that we know all that, 
we can kind of look at this parable with some fresh eyes and understand what Jesus is saying. And we'll see that there's actually symbolism going on here, but not really in the same way as the prodigal son. You know, let's have a little look at what we've got. Jesus is teaching his disciples here. So the steward in the, in the parable is the disciples. That's who he represents. Uh, and this steward discovers this painful truth. His employment is soon to be terminated. It's inevitable there is nothing he can do to prevent it. All that he can do is to choose how to use the things that he has been given that will soon be taken away. Now, he could go out and have one more party, splurge the money, senselessly waste just a little bit more, but instead of focusing on the very brief time that he has now, he focuses on what will come after he is sacked. And so he uses everything he has, knowing he won't have it for long, to make friends. The, the connection that the disciples needed to make and that we need to make to make sense of this is that the steward's job in the parable equals our life in reality. We know that because when Jesus applies the story, he talks about the friends that we make receiving us into eternal dwellings. That is life after this life. So Jesus is saying you have a limited time in this world. And none of your money, your car, your stocks, your family photos, your pleasant view from your home, none of that will come with you. It's going to mean squat in the end. But how you use those things now will have consequences for then. In fact, he gives us one very specific instruction on our priority when we consider how we use what we have now, all of the things that we have now. He says, use it to make friends who will welcome you into heaven. That is, use it to build relationships, to share the gospel. Use it to show Christ's love and to have opportunities to share about what he has done. So the point of these verses is that Christians give everything they've got to win others to Christ. You know, a, a great example of this mentality is what we get when, when we read uh, the words of Paul over in the, the letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, he says, What is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. You know, there's a person who sees the priority of missional living in the Christian life. Imagine the joy of knowing on that last day that these people here with you are the ones who came to this because God brought them through you. Through your stewarding of your possessions, through your stewarding of your life, these ones were saved and they step into eternity with you. In fact, they are there to welcome you in. Everything we have is given to us for this purpose. And understand that it is all going to be taken away, like in the parable. You know, uh, Jesus says, when the wealth you have in this life fails. He doesn't say if it fails or in case it fails, but when it fails. 
One day it will be taken from you at a time that you don't know. Let me warn you, it's a, it's a, it's a fool who says that he will start being a good steward tomorrow. Not many people die expecting to die, if I can be really frank there. Uh, in movies, it's not how it works, right? In movies, usually people get this kind of last-minute speech opportunity. You know, they, their last gasp of breath happens to last about five minutes. And, you know, they, they utter their love for all of the appropriate people, and, and then they disappear and die, you know, like Avengers Endgame, if you will. Uh, but, but that's not how it usually happens in the real world. You know, I... I don't want to be too blunt here, but I kind of do, actually. Um, I, I once saw a guy die. Um, actually, I've done it a few times because I'm a nurse. But I once saw a man die in the drive-thru at McDonald's. Um, middle of the day, not doing anything evidently life-threatening whatsoever. No one was waving any weapon around. He wasn't 90 years old. He was just in his car getting soft serve. And... And, and a poor sequence of events happened, and he died, and there was no chance to utter any last words for that guy. No chance to, to make good on how he'd used everything God had given him. No, no chance to utter a final prayer of forgiveness. No words at all. It was just over. The stark truth of the matter is that everyone knows uh, that we only have a, really a guarantee of this heartbeat. We can't assume that we have any more than that, really. We do. We live like we've got like 80 years to go. Even if we're 80 years old, we often live like we've got 80 years to go in my experience. But we don't have a guarantee of any more than what we've already had. And Jesus says, how you use what you're given now will reveal whether you can be trusted with what you could have then. You know, this, this has a really clear application for us as individuals. I think it's obvious. But I also want to bring this into our, into our gospel communities here at Gospel Church. In our GCs, we want to work towards shared mission together. You know, toward having a specific people group or a community that we seek to help fill the needs of, show the love of Jesus to, and bring the good news of Jesus to. But without a missional view of stewardship, Without this view, that, and this understanding that all that I have has been given to me for this task, we're not going to get very far, to be, to be blunt. Because that's going to create too many inconveniences for us in our lives. Too many challenges to other things that we want to use our stuff and our time and our money on. Let's move on. We're... I'd realize I'm a bit hard to track with today, but we're up to verse 10. Read this with me. Jesus continues on and says this. He says, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? 
No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, our second kind of sub-point today is that Christians give everything they've got to gain more of God in their lives. In fact, Jesus basically says here, how we are using all that we have now reveals whether we're ready to receive the true riches of having God. What this essentially boils down to for us is, again, God has given you what you have now. Are you using it well? I wasn't kidding when I said that this is one of the more challenging passages in the Bible. Are you using it well because it's not yours? Notice here, he says, if you have not been faithful in that, in that which is another's, Jesus is saying that what we have in this life is given to us, lent to us temporarily. We're stewards of it, but God is the owner, so we need to use it for his purposes. In these verses, Jesus speaks about the riches of this world and the riches that we gain by following Jesus. And, and notice that it's really clear here. In, in Jesus' mind, the riches of this world just don't compare to the riches of God. Look at the words that he uses for what we have now. He calls it a very little. He calls it unrighteous wealth. It's not even ours. He says that which is another's. And then compare that to how he describes the riches that are to come. He calls it much. He calls it true riches. He calls it that which is your own. The riches of this world, as sparkly and as wonderful and as alluring as they may seem to, sometimes, are nothing compared to the riches of having Christ. You see, stewarding what you have being given as a good follower of Jesus isn't, isn't about, the wrong thing we could come out of this with is, is thinking that it's all about, you know, saying no to desires, you know, just, just putting off desire and, and saying yes to God instead. It's, it's actually about saying yes to better desires. I'm, I'm convinced that this is the key to stewarding what you have well. You see, all of the things that we could desire in this world, you know, Money, sex, power, respectability, stuff in general. You know, none of those things are ultimately going to deliver the satisfaction that they offer. It's, it's kind of obvious when you think about it, isn't it? Um, best place to look to make it really obvious is the world of advertising. Uh, my favourite example is smartphones. Uh, anyone got a smartphone that they, that they were promised would be amazing and satisfying? Is it? Um, there's this, there was this ad, it was quite a while back now, for, for, for a phone that was called the Samsung Galaxy S4. Uh, it was advertised with the slogan, Life Companion. One year later, they released the S5, almost to the day. It's not a great life expectancy. I passed a sign once, sorry, I love these. I passed a sign once for a second-hand car dealership, Mercedes, I think. Just by the by, the sign said, inner peace comes standard with our certified pre-owned vehicles. <laughs> Name the car. 
Does anyone here own a Merc? No, I won't, I won't, I won't get you to put your hand up. But name the car that has given you lasting peace. Put your hand down, Dad. <laughs> and repent. Um, but here's what Jesus says. Jesus says over in Matthew, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy rust <laughs> where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also now over in peter's first letter he describes what we gain with god he describes it as an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. You might remember that if you've been with us at Gospel Church for a while. We went through 1 Peter a while back. To have Jesus is the greatest treasure there is. Other treasures fade. He does not. Other things will ultimately disappoint. Sin's grubby fingerprints have defiled everything in this world to some extent. Every other treasure and joy that we could have. But Jesus is undefiled. He is perfect. To have God Almighty, the most glorious God, who is, who is more powerful than we'll ever imagine, who made all of the riches that we go after without breaking a sweat, who is love, so much so that he came and died on a cross and carried all of my sin, all of our sin, so that we could have him. That is true riches. What we have in Christ now and will have in Christ in the end will last for ages upon ages and on into eternity. And when we realize that, when we see how much better he is, that's when we can really steward what we have now well, our money well, our stuff well. Because if Jesus, who works for me to know him more and more and to have more of him in my life and to be more like him, if he wants me to get rid of some money or, or to share it in order to share the gospel, then of course I will. Because, because it'll mean more of him. Because it's fulfilling his purposes. And his purposes are good for me and are for me to have more of him in my life. Yeah, that's why Jesus says here, you can't serve God and money. Because it doesn't make sense. Why would you? If you're serving money, if that's what you're going after, uh, even, even part of the time, then you haven't properly understood how glorious it is to have and to pursue Jesus all of the time. And we should emphasize, this isn't, this isn't saying that we are saved by our use of money. One could mistake it for that. No one is forgiven by God because they use their money correctly. But rather, how you use your money will reveal your salvation. How you use everything you have will reveal whether you've truly believed. And how you use it will increasingly reveal how you are increasingly trusting. If you are a saved person, then you have had revealed to you the surpassing worth of knowing God, of having God in your life. And so you will bend everything you've got toward following him and gaining more of him in your life, of knowing him more and bringing others to know him more. 
Now, it's not without point that although Jesus is actually speaking more broadly than money here, he emphasizes it with the point of money. Yeah, he's going to continue to do so throughout this chapter, chapter 16. Money has been a trap for so many Christians. I think it's easy for us to, to look at people, you know, if you, if you know your prosperity teachers, you know, your, your Creflo Dollars or your Joel Osteens, uh, men who fly around the world telling people, fly around in Rome private jets, by the way, which is kind of nice, but telling people that God wants them to be rich now, and we might think to ourselves as we look at those guys, you know, I'm pretty good. I don't believe the gospel is about me getting money now. But, but the question which Jesus is asking us here is, do our lives actually reflect that we believe that? Let me ask you a question. If you won the lottery today, what would you do with the money? You know, you get, you get the call, someone has bought you a ticket, you're a lovely, upstanding, honest person who never buys lottery tickets, of course, but you're now the proud owner. I had someone come up to me after using this illustration in a different sermon once, and he said, Christians don't buy lottery tickets. And he's right, but anyway, um, you're now the owner of $76 million, let's say, just to pick a number out of the air. Um, throw your answer out there. What do you do with it? Give it away? Oh, come on. If you actually had it? If you actually had that 76 mil in your hand in that little briefcase, because that's how I imagine they give it to you. It's probably a bank account transfer, actually. Cancel the church, building loan. Okay, all right, I'm going to interrupt this. Because you're giving the answers that one might have expected. Um, you know, maybe some of us would actually go and do the beautiful house or something, you know. Maybe sunny coast hinterland. I, I like the sunny coast hinterland. It's lovely. Um, maybe some of us would go and buy the car and invest some for later and put some in the bank. Um, but, but really, quiz question, and I think, I think we've already seen a few who would relate to this. And, and by the way, quiz questions, always a trap in my sermons. No, you may not abstain. It, by show of hands, who thinks that it would be the right thing to do to use most or all of that money to the glory of God and the growth of his kingdom, either in your own life or by giving it away? Show of hands. Yes, it's a trick. No, you may not abstain, Matthew Anderson. If you keep that hand down, it means you don't. Matt's buying the house. If you, said, if you did say yes, and I hope that you did, let me guess your reasoning. God has placed this fantastic sum of money in my lap, and it would be wrong for me not to use it to honour him. Close? Here's a thought. From the poorest person among us here at Gospel Church today to the wealthiest on a global scale, we're lottery winners. Congratulations. Understand me, I'm not, um, I'm not talking about kind of this kind of spiritualistic lottery winners. You know, you've been blessed by God because he's in your life. I'm, I'm talking about the moolah, uh, the cash, the ching, we are wealthy beyond compare. You know, when I, when I was researching this, I found a website that compared average monthly disposable income country by country. It's really interesting. Um, it's, it's the money that you have left over after you've bought the essentials. And, and the essentials don't include your television. Um, the essentials are your food, your water, and maybe a, a dwelling place. Basic dwelling place. So basic necessities to survive, right? Australia was at number 10 on the list. 
At number 20 on the list, so 10 spots down from us, you had Norway, earning on average about $1,000 less in disposable income per month than each one of us. At 50 on the list, you had the 46 million residents of Spain. I didn't think Spain would be at 50, that surprised me. Uh, they, they get about $1,600 on average, again, of disposable income monthly per person. At 100 on the list, you have the 2.5 million residents of Namibia, about $600 of disposable income a month after the bare essentials. At 150 on the list, you have a, the 160 million residents of Bangladesh with about $300 of disposable income per month. And at 176 on the list, right down the bottom there, the last country with enough stats to fit on the list at all, you had 11 million people in Cuba with an average monthly disposable income of $25. Now remember, one really important word there is average. And in many countries, a significant portion of the wealth is in the hands of a small part of the population. So that number would be considerably lower for most of the people in those nations. Many people don't have disposable income at all. In fact, many people don't even have that kind of essentials income. You know, the food, water, shelter income. So understand me when I say, you and me, we're lottery winners. So the question then is not, and this is where the trap was, gotcha, Matt. It's not what would you do? It's not what would I do if I won the lottery? It's what am I doing with the lotto money? Or, or to phrase it kind of like verse 12 of this chapter of Luke. What are we doing with the lottery money that belongs to God? You, you, know, you might expect that given this is a sermon in a church, I'd say that the first place that you should give to is here to the church. Well, that's correct. No, it's not actually. Uh, I'm, I'm actually constantly struck by the generosity of people here at Gospel Church. Let me just put that out there. Um, but, but I don't think that's what comes first in God's book of how we steward what we have. Don't get me wrong. The church you attend should be the second place that you should look to answer the question, where should I be using the lotto money God's given me? It's pretty high on the list, number two, that's not bad. It's important to give, the church, give to the church you're a part of because that giving enables the work done here to spread the gospel and, and equip the people who come and who are part of this church, that's you if you're a part of this here, uh, to do the same. But that's the second place because the first place you should look for where you give your money for God's glory is in your own life. Using your money for God's kingdom is not primarily a case of giving it to an organisation to use well. That's the point I'm trying to make here. But of using every cent well, including but not limited to what you give to your church and to mission groups like Compassion including that, but not limited to that. Every cent is given to you for his kingdom. There are just an unending number of ways that that can look. But let me, uh, sorry, they all have that priority at the root. You know, when you buy a house, are you looking at it thinking, how will this be the house that God is going to use for ministry in our lives? 
Ministry is not a thing that the Bible envisages the pastor's doing alone. It's a Christian thing. How am I going to use this to make disciples for Jesus? When you buy your TV or your computer, you, you need to ask yourself, is this something that will glorify God in my life? Both of them can be. Both of them cannot be as well. For some, this might look like pursuing a higher paying job with a heart to give more to others. For others, it might look like taking a big reduction in pay in order to have more time in your life for making disciples or for going to Bible college or for going and planting a church or being a part of a church plant team or whatever. It could look like intentionally budgeting for more visitors to come into your home or keeping money aside to bless your neighbours. Here's a question. How much money am I keeping saved up just so that I'm ready when someone needs that money? I remember I was leading a small group a few years back now uh, where um, we came to a time of prayer on the evening and uh, I asked for prayer points and I asked for a prayer for a friend of mine uh, and his family who were going through some terrible struggles with one of their kids' health, uh, which, which is worse enough, bad enough, but... but um, the, the struggle was kind of compounded by the fact that they lived in a, another country where healthcare was not provided um, and where they needed to pay for all of it. Uh, and they didn't really have that money. And, and another guy in the group, Dan, a good friend of mine, he says, uh, oh, hey, we have an account of money that we set aside for this kind of thing. Uh, so, so, so that we're equipped to give. So here, here's $1,000 that those guys can have for their kids' health. I was a little bit blown away. You know, and that money was there because they wanted to take every opportunity that they could to display and to share the truth of the gospel. Incidentally, you know, Dan and his wife had just had their first kid. His wife uh, was not working at the time and he was an apprentice with the army. So not the most highly paid guy in the world. We're not talking about a CEO here. That was, that was an inspiring example for me. You know, more recently, I've had plenty of chances to see people you know, in this church who don't have lots of money giving generously of what little they have to show the love of Christ and to, to promote the spread of the gospel and the growth of God's people. That's been really moving. But do you want to know what the, the worst part of all of this is? The worst part of it is us. No offence to us, some offence to us. Because as much as we might know all of this stuff we're looking at today up here, we're going we're gonna to actually fail at it at times. We're going to fail at believing it, in fact, probably regularly in some way, shape or form, until the end of our lives. Don't get me wrong, as people of faith, uh, we can grow in this and through God's sanctifying, transforming Work as, as we come to a deeper faith in the truth of who Jesus is, we'll come to know more and more that he's better and our lives will reflect that. But there will be times when we fail as well. But the best part of all of this is Jesus. You see, Jesus wasn't just standing there saying, hey, you guys should steward well from a position of one who doesn't have to worry about his own actions. You see, we fail as stewards. We fail to desire what is best 
for us and we listen to the voice of the old ways that says that there is something else to fulfill me, but Jesus didn't fail. He stewarded perfectly everything he had. Uh, he had for the glory of God because he desired only that. He was perfectly faithful in the little of this life. God the Father could never have demanded that Jesus hand in his books because he was entirely undeserving of death and punishment. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. No one could have taken his life from him because he was and is God and he is utterly perfect and without flaw. He said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. In stewarding well, Jesus chose to die. He offered up his perfect stewardship to atone for our faults and flaws, our rubbish stewardship. He offered up perfect, unadulterated worship to the Father to atone for the idol worship of, of my heart. And not just that, but so that we could have God's Holy Spirit in us, teaching us, changing us so that we can finally use what we have more and more uh, for the glory of the one who is so much more than any of it. So whilst we should learn from this passage to use our money for God's glory and to worship him alone, the main thing that we should get from this passage, I think, is a reminder to look at the perfect steward and just, just wonder. The one who has at great cost given us his perfection. The one who gave everything so that he could welcome us into eternity. And as we see him, we let how he is change how we are. Would you pray with me about that? Jesus, you are the good steward. No one could have taken your life from you, but you laid it down from us. Lord, you came down from heaven. You left your throne and came as a man and walked perfectly, Lord, and died for us. And you've given us your perfection. By your death and resurrection, we are saved. What a what a breathtaking steward you are. Lord, we're so grateful to be those that, that you have called into the eternal dwellings. Lord, we pray that you will lead us to steward well. My words could never convince us to do it, but Lord... By your Spirit's power in our lives, you can make us a people who have every part of what we have bent towards the glory of our God, turned in towards God and, and therefore out towards the world. Make us a people who see what you've given us and see it as a thing given for the mission to make friends for the eternal dwellings. 
Lead us, Jesus, to be more like your perfect stewardship and to live more in the grace of knowing that your perfection is given to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.